snow. Snow, blessed snow, comes out of the sky like bleached flies. The ground is no longer naked. The ground has on its clothes. The trees pilk out of sheets, and each branch wears the sock of God. There is hope. There is hope everywhere. I bite it. Someone once said, don't bite until you know if it's bread or stone. What I bite is all bread, rising, yeasty as a cloud. There is hope. There is hope everywhere. Today, God gives milk, and I have the pail. From the play, The Cure at Troy. Human beings suffer, they torture one another, they get hurt and get hard. No poem or play or song can fully write a wrong inflicted and endured. The innocent in jails beat on their bars together. A hunger striker's father stands in the graveyard dumb. The police widow in veils faints at the funeral home. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up. And hope in history rhyme. So, hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that a further shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. Call miracle self-healing, the utter self-revealing double-take of feeling. If there's fire in the mountain or lightning and storm and a God speaks from the sky, that means someone is hearing the outcry and the birth cry of a new life at its term. Always there is a story behind the story. I told our children this morning one story about one moment in the children's marches in Birmingham, Alabama, the story of May 5th, 1963. And because of the patterns of our services and the careful timing and valuable content of our religious education program, I couldn't take the time to tell the whole story, and I can tell more of that story to you. The spring of 1963 was a low ebb in the struggle for civil rights in this country. 
We know now how it all played out. We know now that there was the March on Washington and the I Have a Dream speech and the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and all of those other milestones, but they hadn't happened yet. Nobody knew they were just about to happen. Martin Luther King Jr. and the other leaders were rather demoralized that spring of 1963. They had started a campaign to end segregation in Birmingham, Alabama, and it wasn't going well. The police were jailing every marcher, which understandably meant that fewer and fewer people were willing to march. King had recently been imprisoned himself, and he had just written his letter from a Birmingham jail. It was a call to action aimed mostly at white liberals, and white liberals were not responding to that call. Taylor Branch is a historian who has written a trilogy of books recounting the civil rights movement in tremendous detail. So if you want to read 2,000 beautifully written pages about this movement, I would recommend them. He writes of this time, the leaders could not predict exactly how an uprising would lead to victory instead of further pain. But they did recognize they were lost without some decisive move. Having submitted his prestige and his body to jail and having hurled his innermost passions against the aloof respectability of white clergymen, all without noticeable effect, King committed his cause to the witness of school children. Allowing children to march was controversial. It was championed by a young minister named James Bevel who, had, who thought that children could provide the moral example and be powerful advocates for justice. He had been leading nonviolence training for high school students and younger students and thought that they were really understanding what he was teaching and were ready to act. And many of the other civil rights leaders did not think this was a good idea. They worried about children's safety and how an arrest might impact their future. They worried about what it would look like for grown adults to send their children out to do this work, sending children out to risk injury and arrest. And Bevel's argument that one ultimately was rooted in the practices of the Christian church that were at the core of the civil rights movement. The black Baptist churches there and then allowed children as young as six to become church members as long as they had consciously accepted the Christian faith. Bevel's argument went that if someone is mature enough to join the church, they are, they are mature enough to march. If they can make decisions about their individual salvation, they can take action to ensure our collective salvation as a nation. The first Children's March was on Thursday, May 2nd, 1963. And on that day, 958 children marched. As many of their parents watched from the sidewalks, the children sang and held signs, and they overwhelmed the police and the law enforcement infrastructure. Over 600 children, ranging in age from 6 to 18, were arrested. They were transported to jails in paddy wagons and school buses. And there are reports that up to 75 children were crammed into holding cells designed for eight adults. The following day, 1,000 more children marched. 
and there was no room left in the jail, so the police were instructed to get the children to disperse using any tool they had. A group of 60 children were targeted with fire hoses, and while most of them fled, 10 stayed and started singing. Freedom, 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 freedom. And as they sang, the authorities brought out more powerful hoses, and the force of the water pushed these children across the sidewalk. Other children who marched, were marching in different directions were met with police dogs, and three children were bit badly enough to require hospitalization. The images of all of this were seen throughout the world. You have probably seen them. Perhaps you watched this unfold as it happened in newspapers and news broadcasts. Maybe you know these pictures from documentaries and history books. That is the story before the story I told the children. The 3,000 children who marched that day on May 5th knew that they might be hurt, knew that they might end up in jail, because that had happened to their friends and their classmates, and they marched anyway. What makes someone march in face of such danger? In part, faith. Those children were deeply rooted in a black Christian tradition that taught them that God is on their side. God is on the side of the oppressed. They knew in their bones the stories of Moses leading the Exodus, Paul and Silas in jail, Daniel in the lion's den. They believed in a God who takes sides and who was taking their side. Those children also acted from hope, the belief in human goodness, Those children hoped, despite ample, overwhelming evidence to the contrary, that those who wielded power would have the moral imagination to see them as human, worthy of equal rights and possessing equal souls. They acted with the hope that those in power would feel pressure to protect them from fire hoses and police dogs, to listen to their demands for equality. They had hope that their actions would be seen and would change people's hearts. They believed that they could bend the moral arc of the universe. And as we know, looking back, their hopes were largely realized. Their hope that people in power would hear their call for justice was realized. After more marches, mostly by children, some that were met with violence and some that weren't. An agreement was reached. Birmingham would have integrated restrooms, water fountains, and lunch counters. The momentum from that victory carried forward and carried the movement forward through to the March on Washington a few months later, which carried the movement forward towards the legislation passed in the years to come that ensured equality and law beyond Birmingham. Near the end of the Birmingham campaign, when victory seemed on the horizon, Martin Luther King told a mass meeting, there are those who make history. There are those who experience history. I don't know how many historians we have in Birmingham tonight. I don't know how many of you would be able to write a history book, but you are certainly making history. You are certainly experiencing history. 
and you will make it possible for the historians of the future to write a marvelous chapter. And here's a piece of one of those marvelous chapters from Branch again. There was no historical precedent for Birmingham, Alabama in April and May of 1963 when the power balance of a great nation turned not on clashing armies but on the youngest student demonstrators of African descent down to first and second graders. Only the literature of Passover ascribed such impact to the fate of minors. And never before was a country transformed arguably redeemed by the active moral witness of school children. He continues, the miracle of Birmingham might have stood alone as the culmination of a freedom movement grown slowly out of southern black churches, yet it was merely the strongest of many tides that crested in the movement's peak years, 1963 to 1965. They challenged, inspired, and confounded America over the meaning of simple words. Dignity, equal votes, equal souls. That is one story of hope that I hope we hold as a seed in our soul, that we tend and watch so it might bloom within us, among us, and beyond us. The fact that tomorrow is named solely for Martin Luther King Jr., does the movement a disservice because it took millions to bring about the civil rights movement. It took small children and elders and everyone in between. And it's important to remember that it isn't one person who makes change. It is, takes community upon community rising up to say something is not right. And I have another story of hope, a different sort of hope, an ancient, this is an ancient Greek story about an archer named Philoctetus. And Philoctetus was among those who set out for the Trojan War with Odysseus. He possessed a magical bow that was given to him by Hercules just before that hero died. And on the way to Troy, on the way to war, Philoctetus was bitten by a snake. And the wound doesn't heal. It festers and starts to smell terrible, and Philoctetus is in constant pain. And so the captain of the ship, Odysseus, abandons him on a deserted island and continues on. Ten years later, the war is continuing, and there's a prophecy that only that bow from Hercules, now owned by Philoctetus, can end the war. So Odysseus returns to the island in search of the bow and bringing with him a young soldier that he convinces to try to steal that bow. And there's the story that's been turned into a play over and over again by the ancient Greeks and then with some modern interpretations. It takes place wholly on the island with conversations among these three men about war, morality, trauma, and forgiveness. And ultimately, Philoctetus is convinced by appearance of Hercules, who's now a god, that he must go to Troy and the war, and that is the only way he will be healed. The story is a common one in the ancient Greek world. At least four different plays telling this story were written, and the only one that survives is by Sophocles, who made its debut. It made its debut 400 years before the Common Era. 
Seamus Heaney is an Irish poet, playwright, and Nobel laureate who made his own version of the work called The Curate Troy. And the line, When Hope and History Rhyme, that gave our sermon its title, is from that play. Haney's version brings in echoes of the modern to the ancient story. He said that he wrote it in part to explore the challenges of reconciliation in South Africa and in his native Northern Ireland. Haney died several years ago, and the words, Walk on air against your better judgment, are inscribed on his tombstone, which is a powerful call to hope in itself. The character of Philoctetus is a fascinating one. He's hurt, abandoned by the people he thought he could trust. His physical and emotional wounds have been festering for 10 years. He wails in pain throughout the play. And he has spent 10 years alone, living in a cave, ruminating on what has been done to him. Then these men appear. The young soldier tries to trick him into leaving the island, saying he'll take him home. And Odysseus tries to explain to him how abandoning him was the right choice, the moral choice. His wailing and stinking hurt the morale of the troops. And they tell Philoctetus that there's a healer at Troy who can heal his wound, that there is a prophecy that only he can lead the Greeks to victory. What does one do at that point? How can he trust these words from the man who abandoned him? Should he hope for healing? What could hope even look like after 10 years of pain and isolation? And when he says he won't go to Troy, when he has convinced the young soldier to take him straight home, the chorus chimes in with a mature hope, a hope that is fully aware of the suffering in the world. And the chorus says, as Tim read earlier, human beings suffer They torture one another. They get hurt and get hard. No poem or play or song can fully right a wrong, inflicted and endured. The innocent in jails beat on their bars together. The hunger striker's father stands in the graveyard dumb. The police widow in veils faints at the funeral home. History says don't hope on this side of the grave. But then once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe in that, that a further shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. And as Philoctetus considers this, Hercules, once a hero, now a god, appears to say, go, Philoctetus, with this boy, go and be cured and capture Troy. Asclepius will make you whole, relieve your body and your soul. Go with your bow, conclude the sore and cruel stalemate of our war. Then take just spoils and sail at last out of the bad dream of your past. And so with a little divine intervention, Philoctetus gives in to hope and trust Odysseus despite his past untrustworthiness. He's willing to seek out that further shore on the far side of revenge. He's able to return to right relationship with a man who has hurt him, knowing that healing is only available through that trust. The gods in the chorus tell him healing can only be found through that relationship, and he moves beyond his pain and acts as though things can get better. It's unclear whether he believes that or not, 
but he is acting as though it is true. We all know that it's dangerous and hurtful and sometimes harmful to tell people to turn the other cheek and bless those who persecute you. Words like those who have kept people in cycles of abuse and oppression. Forgiveness isn't always the best course of action, but we know that the ability to hope when there appears to be no good reason to hope is a power with the potential to change the world. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, is a refrain often repeated from Martin Luther King Jr. And like all good preachers, he stole that from someone else. He borrowed it from Theodore Parker, a 19th century Unitarian minister and abolitionist. And it echoes the statement that once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. And this belief that things can get better is the central message of the holiday we mark tomorrow. It is an act of hope. We as the church are called to be the custodians of hope. This isn't false hope. This isn't a refusal to see things as they are. We know things aren't perfect. We know they are far from perfect. But we know that we, like those Birmingham children, have the power to bend the ark towards justice. We can be a drop in the longed-for tidal wave of justice. And we know that hope is an action. It is not idle. It is taking risks to see our values made real. Hope is active. Hope is six-year-olds marching in the faces of fire hoses and police dogs and wounded soldiers, trusting those who might not be worthy of trust and knowing that that can be a source of healing. Hope is prophets and movements turning words into actions. And hope is all of the other stories of people bending the ark and being the tidal wave that we hold in our hearts. This day, this week, and the months ahead, may we continue to join with others to be the benders of that moral arc of the universe. May we join with others and be the drops of the tidal wave of justice. May we continue to be the people of love, the people of hope, and the people of change. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.